thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I invite you to take your Bible and turn in the Old Testament to the last book of the Old Testament. And that book is called Malachi. Malachi in Hebrew means my messenger. That has led scholars to deduce that this was a pseudonym or a pen name for the one who was the human author. It really doesn't matter who the human author is or was because we know the Spirit of God is the one who works in the lives of those through whom He gives us the Scripture. A variety of people, different genders, different ages, but all people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and were used by the Spirit of God to give us what we call our Bible. In 1964, Julie Andrews sprung on the stage of celebrity. She was the star of Mary Poppins. And you guessed it if you don't know, she was Mary Poppins. The setting is the early 20th century in London. And the more near setting is the home of the Banks family. Mr. Banks was a banker and a well-to-do one. He and his wife were of the upper class, along with their children, Jane and Michael. And they had the stiff upper lip, you know, didn't show much emotion. But one thing that had really gotten under the skin of Mr. and Mrs. Banks was that their children were out of control. A nanny was hired, and it didn't take long for them to drive her batty, and she left. They were very clever, and they teamed up well. Many times children, especially if they are the different gender, don't team up so well, but that was not the case with the Banks children. An ad was put in the paper, the London Times, and a woman answered the call, Mary Poppins. She was rather mystical as far as her origins were concerned, and she was quite magical in her capacity to help these children get control of themselves. The song that was popularized most of all in that particular movie made by Disney was A Spoonful of Sugar. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Thank you. And these children could not be given medicine by their former nanny, but amazingly, Mary Poppins conned them into it. That's not quite fair to her, but it was close. And she was able to sing that song with them, and they joined in, and they began to see the things that they always pushed against had merit. And their lives turned out beautifully as they followed the leadership of this great nanny, Mary Poppins. When it comes to fulfilling our obedience to give a portion of our income to God, He has given us a heaping spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. And you'll see 
about that. God's turned a duty, I use a duty in parentheses or quotation marks, into a very delightful thing. We're going to see that this morning. And I ask you to turn with me to the book of Malachi now, if you haven't already found your way there. And we're going to look at a passage in the third chapter of the book of Malachi. I would say take notes if you have a capacity for doing that. And listen carefully and take home with you what you hear today about God's spoonful of sugar that helps us to deal happily with what He commands us to do when it comes to the resources, material resources, that He has placed at our disposal. Let's look at this passage of Scripture. Rather than read the whole thing and come by through it again and dissect it, and explain it. I'm just going to start with the first verse and comment along the way and make application. The first verse is verse 6 of chapter 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. I could spend the rest of the time we have this morning on that simple truth. It's not simple in the sense that it's not very important. It's simple because it's something that's easily grasped. And it is the quality of God that is the key attribute of God. He is what is called immutable. I, the Lord, do not change. Have you noticed how everything else in your life is changing? Everything. You change. You change in your outlook sometimes. You change in your appearance as you age. God does not change. That's critically important. He can be utterly dependent upon. If God says something, we can take it to the bank. We can trust His nature. We can trust that He says what is true about Himself, that He's a holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That means He is the holy other. This word holy that I just used is not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's totally different. But He has made Himself accessible to us. How has He done it? Well, in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And nothing came into being except through Him that has come into being. Jesus Christ, God before He became one of us, remains deity now. He is a picture of the fullness of God in every attribute. This Lord whom we know as Jesus. And He makes God accessible to us. Isn't that a great gift that God has given us? It's beyond great. There's no superlative we can use to explain that. But God, remember, He does not change. That's so important going forward in your life as you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the second part of verse 6. After having written, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I want to begin with the phrase, sons of Jacob. If you know anything about your Old Testament history, you know that Jacob was the grandson, one of two grandsons, of the patriarch Abraham. Abraham and his dear wife Sarah had a child late in life. Abraham, 100 years old, Sarah, 90. This child was a beautiful child and gift to them. 
He, in turn, was given a wife by God. Her name was Rebecca. She bore two sons, twins. In the birthing process, the midwife noticed that one hand came out of the mother of these children, and she put a little piece of ribbon around it so she could identify which one comes first in case the one whose arm got out first of the mother's womb was second. It's important. And if you know anything about history as it relates to the Middle East, the firstborn is always the leader, especially if that firstborn was a male. As it turned out, Esau came out first. But guess who came out second? Jacob. And he was trying to grab the heel of his older brother so he could be first. Now, we don't know what kind of consciousness he had. Probably not a whole lot, but it was a picture of what was going to come. He stole his brother's birthright. He stole the blessing that was reserved for the first child. I mean, he was a crook from the beginning. His whole life was shady, actually. And he found ways to get his way, and he did it by conniving. His name, Jacob, really means deceiver. I wouldn't want to name my kid Jacob for anything. And there's probably more than one Jacob in this room. So go back and have a, have a conversation with your parents about that. It's not too late to get a legal name change. But Jacob, okay, he was just a rounder, as we say, where I grew up. But why did God call the inhabitants of Judah Jacob's? It's because they had become just like their ancestor. The sin of their father Jacob had been transmitted generation after generation after generation. And the result was they had the same traits in the way in which they related to each other and also especially the way in which they related to God. O sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now this is rather remarkable. When it says they're not consumed, first of all, I want you to know what the word consumed means in its basic meaning. The basic meaning is total annihilation. The sons of Jacob are not wiped off the face of the earth. That in itself was astonishing because as what we're going to see is how they behaved in relationship to God, thinking they could get away with something. You know, none of us can get away with sneaking around like Jacob did. Did Jacob get away? He tried to play the evasive one with God the Father. He tried to do bargaining with Him, etc., etc. But finally, on a very dark evening when he was all alone, thinking that the following day would be probably his last day because he was going to have to meet his brother Esau, whom he had cheated over and over again, and whom he had not seen in over 20 years. And so he was worried it was dark. The only light would be radiating from the moon if it was full at that time. Probably it wasn't, because when the, the story is told in the book of Genesis 32, he's wrestling with this figure, and he doesn't know who the figure is. And it happened to be he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord, which would be the Lord pre-incarnate Christ in that situation, what is called a Christophany or a Theophany 
by Old Testament scholars. But these people were people who were in deep need. We're going to see how deeply in need they were and why they were in need. The first thing we need to do is back up a little bit and consider the setting of this book in its history. Where did it fit in history? And then also spiritually, what was going on in their lives? Chronologically, scholars are agreed that this book was written between 450 and 425 B.C. And so these words are God's words to a man who is simply and somewhat mystically simply called my messenger. Maybe it was to protect him because of the severity of the message. We don't know. But what we do know is that the situation was chronologically in that time. It was a time of great difficulty also in the nation. You will recall what we've read already before perhaps, and we're going to read in detail, that the country was in a drought. And the drought was due to an infestation of locusts. Some have speculated who are people who are entomologists, people who study insects, say that maybe this was an infestation of larval Locust. The reason because I say that, and, and they would say it's because the animal is called a devourer. We're going to see that in verse 11. So there was a drought. When I thought about the great drought that occurred here, and the people were beginning to run out of resources to feed themselves, I thought about the Dust Bowl. Have you ever heard about the Dust Bowl in the history of the United States? In 1930, almost for the entire decade, there was this terrible climate in Colorado, New Mexico, Kansas, Oklahoma, and the panhandle of Texas. And for months, and almost year upon year, there was a drought, no rain, and the wind blew. Wind would pile up sand three feet high. We talk about blizzards, that are happening even now, probably in the Mideast as well as the Midwest. And we think of drought, not a drought, but a building up of snow, don't we? Well, that, get a mental picture of that in 1930. There was great concern, and rightly so, for the people who indwell there. Those states which I mentioned depopulated during that time. They just could not live. They didn't get enough water. They could not get enough windless time to sow grain. And the situation was dire. I read an article in preparation for what I'm sharing with you about that. And the article made note of the fact that there was an interesting absence of any of the writing. And there was a lot of writing in that day, as you would imagine, in the United States press and other ways, about the great Dust Bowl. But there was very little said about God in those. The church was basically silent. There was a division between the conservative wing of the church which we would call evangelical believers who believe God's Word is from Him. It's true. It has relevance to us when we read it. 
He speaks to our hearts when we're in a place like this and it's being taught. If it's taught properly, it speaks to our hearts and our minds. We're motivated to apply what we hear. Those people were virtually quiet. This was in the New Deal area and era. So there had been a shift after the Great Depression in the dependence of churches, quite frankly, upon the government. Prior to, this is amazing, prior to the great fall of the stock market in 1929, the churches in America were the source of over 90% of charity to people who were down and out. Over 90%. And shortly into the New Deal of FDR, President Roosevelt, that shifted because there was great relief, unfortunately, on the part of people who made up the churches. Now they could let the government do it. And that has continued to this point, hasn't it? So the church was silent, basically. There was a periodical. I didn't mention the liberal wing of Christianity. And that wing was growing in numbers. It was comprised of intellectuals. Now let me stop here just a moment. We who know Jesus, I am an evangelical. That simply means I believe the Bible is God's Word given to us by the Holy Spirit through human beings who were moved by the Holy Spirit to write down the Word of God. And that same Holy Spirit, God Himself, He's the one who gives us understanding. How would we ever understand this book without having help to understand the meaning of it and how it applies to us. Think about it. 2,000 years plus. This was 2,500 years ago and God will have spoken to some people today through this book. That's amazing, isn't it? It verifies that this is no ordinary book. It's not just some document from antiquity. That is interesting to read at times. It is God's Word. It's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we have this Word of God coming to us. And as we consider what was going on in the Dust Bowl era, the liberal wing was removing itself from the Bible, away from it. It was something you couldn't trust. A panel of nine leading voices in that part of the church, the liberal wing, who didn't really believe the Bible was a reliable document, they were asked the question, do you think that prayer could have anything to do with rectifying the great drought? Nine of the men all replied, only two said yes. One, who was probably the more prominent of all the people, the most prominent, I should say, his name was Harry Emerson Fosdick. He was a Baptist, interestingly enough. And this is what he said in answer to that question. He said that I do not believe under any circumstance that prayer can affect the weather. Wow. Now let's go back in time before the book of Malachi. Solomon was crowned king following his father. 
big shoes to fill. God speaks to Solomon. Solomon speaks and writes it down. The Lord used him. He says, if my people, namely Israel, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven. I will heal the land. Now, what I wanted to save for now, and it happened in the verse before that verse from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13 says, If I close up the heavens so that it does not rain. Can you see why people who believe the Bible and know that it's reliable would have had or should have had a viewpoint that would permit it if did not command us to speak out if we had lived at that time? We need to look to God for help. I know you know that. But sometimes we do it. I've done it. I've, heard, I've said this, what I'm about to repeat to you. After all the human resources have been depleted in an effort to try to get something that needs fixing repaired, we'll say something like this. Well, all we have now is prayer. Have you ever say, said that? Some of you have said it. I know I've said it. All we have is prayer. Well, let's back up a minute. That's all we have any time is to depend on the Lord. And it's not to say we're not to go to our doctors when we're ill or go to people who can help us in technical things that we're ignorant of. No, not, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is our first line of defense when we find ourselves under attack is who? The Lord. And to pray, to go to Him and trust Him. And He will deliver us in His way and His time. By the way, Mr. Fosdick, I, I got to thinking when I read that yesterday in the article. It's been a long time I've, since I've thought of Harry Emerson Fosdick. He was a brilliant man. And he was a sincere man. But you can be brilliant and sincere and be wrong. So I thought, I think I've got a book in my library by him. And I went rambling through it and I found it. And, you know, the cover's worn off here. And, and it says, The Meaning of Prayer. I had read this book and interestingly, there's some things he said that were true. But when he said, there's no place for praying for relief from a drought, that man was way off base, wasn't he? But we are people who are in some ways common men and women. We're never going to be quoted in some kind of article that asks our opinion of crises that we know are going on in the world. But here's the thing. We are His people. We are not descendants of Abraham. Or are we? We cannot trace most of us as our bloodline back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. But we are by God's work. God says in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, read it. He has taken the two who were at odds and He has made them into one man. And when you read that, the context, there's no conclusion you can reach except that we who know Jesus have been grafted in to the people of God. 
The illustration is used by Paul calling the people of God an olive tree. The Lord has lopped off some branches that are descendants of Abraham. And it's not person for person, but he's put people like you and I who have trusted in Christ alone and our hearts have been circumcised. You know the covenant sign for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What was it? They were circumcised. It was a picture of the covenant that God had made with them and they had reciprocated. The covenant, the promise that was given to the patriarchs of Israel. But Abraham is our father spiritually. That's what the scripture says. And it has substantiation, I might add, in the Old Testament. People say, well, yes, Mike, the New Testament would bear that out. That's the New Testament. That was the message that was given for the Jewish people to get saved, their Messiah, Jesus is their Messiah. But it was for us too. But if you go back into the book of Genesis, especially in the conversations that God the Father had with Abraham, the father of Israel, what do we discover? He talks about his seed would be blessed. Notice it's singular. What seed was he speaking of? Jesus Christ. And how are we related to God today? Through Jesus Christ. So we are people who too have the privilege of being people who have Abraham as our spiritual father. Follow it and do your own research there. So we know what the setting was. Now let's quickly look at the next section which deals with the sin of these people. It was egregious. It was incredible. Look at the second part of verse 7. He says, return to me and I will return to you. And back up at the beginning of that verse, it says, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes. That would be aside from my commands. You have refused to obey me. I will return to you, he says, if you return to me. The word for return is the word repentance in the Hebrew language. And that means a person is going one way and all of a sudden God speaks to him or her, grabs him or her, and pulls him or her to himself. And this is what was true of those people. God was calling them, repent, you're walking away from me. A term that's used sometimes, they had backslidden. They had made progress with the help of the Spirit of God, but now they were sliding back. And God says, you need to repent and I will return to you. This reminds me of the prodigal son parable. You know that story? A man had two sons. The younger comes to him and demands his part of the inheritance. According to Jewish law, in the Old Testament book, books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Exodus, talk about how the eldest son got two-thirds of the inheritance. The second son got one-third of the inheritance. And the younger guy, he goes off, spends all the money in wild living, disrespects his father, was ashamed to his father, comes to his senses, comes back, and what happens? God the Father embraces him. And we've seen this recently, 
that when God the Father represented in this parable, uh, this wealthy landowner, great dignitary, sees his son coming back from a distance. He evidently had staked himself out on a parapet all the way around the wall that protected his property. And every evening he probably would spend the last hours of the day scanning the horizon in hopes his son would be coming. And all of a sudden he sees him and he does have the gait of his son. And he wonders it. And then he knows, that's my boy. And he dismounts from the wall, bursts through the gates, and he doesn't walk like any dignified man of his standing to greet someone. He literally runs he would have had long flowing garments. He would have had to take the hem of his garments and tuck them under what would be called the belt, like a girdle that would go across the midriff. And he could do that. And he ran and he embraced his son. Wow. The Bible says, draw near to me. God speaks. Listen carefully. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's movement. When I start moving in the direction of my Lord, God, my Lord, moves close to me. That's repentance on my part. God doesn't repent. He stays the same. Remember, I, the Lord, do not change. That's what we've seen, right? He does not change. But what we know is this sin was heavy on the hearts of the people, but God was not going to consume them as we saw in verse 6. He was going to give them a way out. Verse 8, look at it. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And here comes the thunderbolt in tithes and offerings. Now thought, think about this. What is a tithe? Many of you know what it is. It's the Hebrew word for tenth. Ten percent. A tithe, if you made $10, just for illustration's sake, would be $1. If you made $100, it'd be $10. If you made $1,000, it'd be $100. If you made $10,000, it's $1,000. And this is the standard which God has established for us as His children. And the Bible says in the book of John 3, listen, it says a man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from heaven, i.e., from God. In another place, in the book of 1 Corinthians 4.2, it's in the form of a question, what do you have that you did not receive? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of, of all, the earth, everything in the world. God created the heavens and the earth. God's the one who brings sunshine and rain and the change of seasons. God is the one who is the author of all life, wildlife, plant life. He's the author of all that human life made in the image of God. And so what we know is that we uh, go to the Lord for our help and we need to turn to Him. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. We see God drawing near. He promises at least, doesn't He? He says, if you will return to me, I will return to you. And I want you to give tithes and offerings. We've already said what a tithe is. I remember when I first tithed money, 
I was not under any kind of pressure to do that by any human being. My parents, I had witnessed that they tithed. I knew that. I was 16 years old, got my first job where I got a paycheck. Do you remember the first job when you got a paycheck instead of somebody just giving you cash? Not that there's anything wrong with cash, but it was something about getting that paycheck. I was working in the summer, 40 hours a week, and I was making good money. You know what good money was in 1966? A dollar and a quarter an hour. Big bucks. So I got a check every Friday, and I couldn't wait to go to the bank and cash it. And I got that, ooh, you know, that. And I asked for fives because I wanted several bills, you know. But I wanted, I wanted them in fives not just to have several bills. I wanted in fives because I wanted the privilege of my first paycheck to take a tithe out of it. Thank God I had parents who helped me to understand. They helped me by their lifestyle. That was most important. But they helped me to get me to a place like this to hear teaching from the Word of God. And by the way, we have a couple of children. I love it when children are in here. Some of you don't. I like it because it takes me back. By the time you were three years old, you were in big church. There was no such thing as big church and little church. There was just church. And I would hear the preacher preach. I don't remember hearing him teach on tithing, but I'm sure I did. But here's what I did. Took that $5 bill when the offering plate was passed. I couldn't wait for it, putting my five in. Now let me ask you a question. And we know it's 1966, not 2024. But do you think that $5 made a big difference to the functioning of the Word of God through that church? No, $5. But this is the beauty of tithing. I've seen it from that point and all points in between. Is that it's proportional giving. So you give according to what God has given you in terms of income, realizing, according to Deuteronomy 8, 18, and I know it's the truth, God gives you the capacity to make money. Think about it. Who gave you your smarts? God did. Who gave you your aptitudes? There are things I can't even do, and it's, it used to be embarrassing anymore. I'm just saying, I just can't do it. Anything to do with my hands besides write something, I'm pretty well done. I can put gas in the car, but that's the only thing I know about a car, pretty much. I have to get men in this church who are young enough to be my grandchildren to help me do stuff. Ask Reuben about it. He's, he's, I mean, I don't abuse you too much, do I, Reuben? Okay. But Reuben can do anything. And Sorry, Reuben, I've, I've blown your cover here. But, but here, God's given everyone in this room aptitude so that she or he can make a living. And He's given you a mind that you can follow what He has to say. And He's given you, if you know Jesus, He's given you the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And He wants you to tithe your money. If it all belongs to Him, He's making a big concession to let you have 90% of it, right? But quite frankly, all of it's His. And the term that's used in the Bible for you and me, we are to be stewards. That means we're to be God's money managers. And if you want some instruction on what that includes, read the Bible. 
I gave a book that I've used to give to other people, and it's called The Treasure Principle. It's a good little book. It's, you can read it in a couple of hours. Very helpful in learning. Look that book up if you want to read a good book. This is the best book, the Bible. Do that first, but you can get some clarification on some of that there. All right. He goes on to say, offerings and offerings would be anything in addition to your tithe. And the question is raised, do I have to limit my giving to the local church that I go to with the offerings? No, not necessarily. I have about four or five people the Lord's given me leadership and direction to contribute to individually every month. They are in parachurch ministries in most cases. They're missionaries. There are two of them who are missionaries to Spain, a couple and an individual. I give my tithe to the church, 27.5%, by the way, of every dollar you give to this church goes to missions. And before I forget it or run out of time, this is a very important point. We read from Philippians chapter 4. Great passage. It concludes with that great promise. My God, Paul says, what's he going to do? He's going to bless you with everything you need. You're going to have all the resources monetarily that you have given away. God's going to replenish that. This is the reciprocity that God does when we obey God. He's not going to leave you on some sort of island that has no resources. In fact, this is the miracle of God's math. God gives. He tells us to give. And sometimes He tells us to give uh, a ridiculous amount from our point of view. If you're making, let's say you're making $3,000 a month and you are not a tither, you know that this is the truth that God says, and you say, there's no way I can give $300 a month. I'm barely making it on $3,000. I can't give up $300. Well, let me say, I'll just, I'll, I'm going to put myself, I haven't, I haven't done this to right now. And Jesus is going to have to help me, okay? He's not even volunteered. Jesus is helping both of us. But I would say, if you tithe for a month and you run short of money, come see Jesus first and me second. <laughs> we trust the Lord, don't we, Jesus? I know you do. And I, I, can, I think I do. But nevertheless, this is what we want to do. To do what God says. Look, let's read quickly through here. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, a whole nation of you. And a, a book that was written at the same time, two books earlier in the Old Testament, in the book of Haggai. You may never have read or heard of Haggai, but look at one verse. I wish we could read the whole context. You do that at your leisure. Look at verse 6 of Haggai 1. You have sown much, but harvest little. Do you feel like that sometimes? I'm just working and working. I'm working 24-7, it feels like, and I have so little to see for it. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, not enough there to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Do you ever feel like that? I promise you, not on my word, but on the word of God, 
if you will line up with what God says, and I'm not doing any kind of name it, claim it, peace, prosperity, all that stuff. I'm teaching the truth from God's Word. And I'm not putting myself up against anybody that you would hear teach on this. But I do know this from 56 years of trusting God. 58. I'll tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, the house of God. That would be the people of God. In the book of 1 Peter, this is the way God describes the church. He describes the church as a building made up of living stones. Living stones. Who might those living stones be? You, if you know Jesus, and I, if we know Him. This is who we are. Praise God that He cares enough to make us part of His house. And test me, this is the only time in the entire Bible where God says to people, test me. He's saying that to us today. He's saying it again to me. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing and it overflows. I have come close to running out of money since I started tithing. And I thought back to a time, I didn't know exactly the year, but I was able to find something I wrote in my daily journal back then. It was September the 8th. It was Labor Day of 1981. Most of you weren't born then. I was 31 years old then. And what had happened, we had a guest speaker to come to our church. It happened at that time in our churches. And the man came and he stayed with us from Sunday through Friday. He was a pastor at Farmington, New Mexico, a friend of mine. He came, he preached. The Lord moved in our church beautifully. God spoke to the people. And it was awesome. What God had moved in my heart to do, against my will, frankly, there was a group of singles, a singles group was just beginning, and they wanted to take a mission trip to Chihuahua City. And so I said, awesome. And then we looked for people who would share cars. There was one car from within the group, there were about 12 who went, one had a van, and then they needed one more. Nobody stepped up. I made pleas to people. Nobody stepped up, and I had this little nagging in my mind. Mike, what about you? But Lord, I've got a Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah, and how many people will it sit? Well, four if they cram in. Okay. Five maybe if you've got skinny people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I said, Lord, you know I've been putting off getting my brakes done and they're in bad shape. I don't want to send people off into another country with a car that could be wrecked easily. Not for the sake of the car. It wasn't worth that much. But I'm talking for their sake. He said, who's your next door neighbor? Uh, Pete Pellicott. And what does he do? He's a service manager at Hoy Fox. Volkswagen. Okay. All right, God. Okay, I'll do it. And I went and I took it to Pete, hoping he would give him a discount. He didn't even mention a discount. I had to pay the whole amount. <laughs> And let me read this to you. I had gotten down to a hundred and fifty-three plus forty-three. That's one hundred ninety-six dollars. All I had, and the charge was all 
but a dollar and eighty cents that was in my checking account. Almost a hundred and forty bucks. I thought, wow. I was feeling good about myself that I was willing to make the sacrifice. But when it came time to write that check, I don't know if my hand kind of shook or not, but I wrote it and gave it. Now, it's early in the month. I got paid once a month, once a month. I had a wife and two children. We had our freezer stocked with food. So I know the Lord was going to get us through there. But what if some emergency came up? Financial. I don't have any money. Well, I went ahead and did that. And on the day after that Sunday, that was on a Sunday that I was thinking about this and went and took the car the week before to do it. So, but what I decided was, Lord, I can trust you, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I can trust you. And I'm reading my Bible, as was my custom, and it is today. And I'm reading through the Bible. It's in the book of Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. There's one sentence part of a sentence in the 15th verse and says, as you have done, it will be done to you. And all of a sudden, I had a calm come over me. I, tr I can trust the Lord. It's not the first time I've stepped out in faith based on what He's told me to do. So I relaxed. I was having giver's remorse, by the way, for two or three days. You know what I mean? The next day, the mail came, not on Sunday, but not on money, it was Labor Day. I got the mail, just curious, opened up, and there was a letter from the man who had preached at the church. And he had a note in it thanking me for having him there. And then he said, it's my custom when I get a love offering from the church for having been there to send my tithe to the pastor and his family. Wow. It was a $75 check. Now let me read this. Today, Obadiah 15 was further substantiated in my life as I received $75 from John Preston in appreciation for our hospitality to him during the revival. Of the $128 I spent on repairing the Volkswagen, $25 has come back to us. Praise the Lord. $125, not $24, $125. We only had $1.80 left in the checking and $43 in the savings but the 125 received has solved our money needs. My God has and will continue to supply my needs according to His unlimited riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That was, count them, 43 years ago. Time and time again. I wish I could tell you. I, I could tell story after story after story how I was at my wits in because I had no money and I had things I could not avoid paying for, like taxes. But God always gave me a way out. The reason was, there's no, no good thinking about me, but I sought to do what He said with the money He gave me to do with. And He's, plant, he's taken care of me over and over. I'm not a wealthy man in a sense as wealthy goes. But I am a wealthy man because I'm a child of God. And He is true to what He says. If we'll trust Him, do our tithing properly. It's not hard to figure, 10%. If you get 500 or 5,000, just move the decimal point over one. You got it. You don't even have to know math to do. Just move the decimal. But here's what the Scripture says. We saw that my God shall supply all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Look at the context. 
That was a promise which was given to the Philippian church. What had just been said earlier about the Philippians. Paul was really thanking them, encouraging them of all the churches in Macedonia. You're the only one who sent me support. He was a missionary and sent support. Historically, our church has been a church which has been keen on missions. And it started way back in 1994 when we began to move forward was when we had been in debt to the tune of $610,000. When I came here, the church was in debt that much and about, there weren't this many people in the whole church body. We had maybe 200 people who were active. And we were scrambling to get enough money to pay anybody anything. We got a plan in place that by the end of 2000, that would be six, five years really at the time that we adopted this plan, that we'd be totally debt free. We had only one copying machine, it was a desktop. We had no computers, none. We didn't have all the bells and whistles. This church, what at that time and always has been thought of as a rich church. Well, I beg you pardon, we're all rich in Christ, but we weren't wealthy. We had some people who were prominent in the community, but we were just pretty much common people like we are now, praise God. And the Lord used us in this way. God gave our church from one couple who went to our church. They weren't members of our church. You know, I got a call. I was on vacation at my hometown, Memphis. Got a call from the treasurer. And he said, Mike, and he called the name of the couple. They have given $610,000 to Coronado Baptist Church. And they have designated to pay off the debt. Now, I had not asked them. Nobody had asked them. But they were listening to the Lord. And we were listening to the Lord too because we were going to do what God wanted us to do and step out in faith. And God blessed us. Then if you go forward, and I'm looking at Kevin right now because i got a picture of him and his brother at the grand opening of our Christian Life Center. They were just boys then. Kevin's got his own children now. He and Alicia have their own children now. But what happened was we started this building and we decided when God paid off the debt, we'd never borrow any money again. And to this day, we haven't. That building was built. Surrey Park, the apartments were bought. The crossing, Junior League was bought. No money borrowed. God has provided and provided and miraculously. And the way he did in the CLC, we got to a point where the man who was a contractor who is, was a member of our church and a close friend of mine, I went to him and I said, called his name and I said, hey, how's it going? He said, you've got two months to get this money together because I've got all these subs to pay. And I thought, whoa. And I kind of swallowed really hard and I wasn't looking forward to the next Sunday because I got up here and I explained the condition that we were in and the challenge we had. And I said to them, either I'm going to die <laughs> and maybe it's your hands or I'm going to have to quit. I'm not inclined to quit and I hope you don't kill me, but... We need this money. And I, I, I didn't say it with tongue in cheek mainly. But, and so that was it. We didn't take any pledges. By the way, you'll never be asked to give a pledge here 
about how much money you're going to give. And there's a reason, a biblical reason for that, because the Bible talks about he who makes a vow, if he doesn't fulfill it, he's in hot water with me. That's what God says. So we don't want to put you in a place like that. Nobody will ever know how much money you give. I have no idea. Unless you come up to me and give me a check and I can't help but see it. I don't want to know what you give. Why? Because it might prejudice me either against you or for you. And I want to treat everybody the same. That's the way we want to be here as leaders, isn't it? Jesus, that's our, that's our Francisco. That's the way we do. So what happened was after that, that Wednesday, we got a call. It was from one of our members. He said, I want the treasurer to come to my house. I'm going to make a contribution to the building. Well, our treasurer went. The man had been to a meeting the night before, and the man who was leading the meeting was asking the people at the tables, they were tables of eight, to pray for something for their local church. He prayed that we could get the money to pay the building off. And this couple, after they got to the car, they'd been praying about and talking about, after hearing that prayer, the man said to his wife, how much do you think we should give? They had been thinking about a number. She said, 50,000 is what we've been thinking, but I think we ought to give 100,000. 100,000, just like that. Then he went to his best friend in the church, who's still a member of a church. Both of these men are still members of the church. He went to his best friend, and he said to him, it's time for you to step up, bud. If you're going to give to this, they've been talking about it evidently. Give. He came straight to the church from the Bible study. They were together, and he wrote a check for 50000 100000 50000 Man, I'm just kind of blown away. I'm, I'm really beginning to feel a little better about my future as a human being on earth. <laughs> so there had been a family who'd come to our church. They traveled here from Louisiana, retired medical doctor, professor. And he said, my wife has cashed in her annuity. Would you mind if we took the tithe of that and apply it to the building fund? I said, absolutely not. $12,000, I come back, open my mail. I'll open this letter that I thought probably was a Christmas card because it's December, and out dropped a check. And there was a note. It was from a lady named Adeline Dewey who's with the Lord now. And Adeline Dewey, in this note, sweet thing, she was a widow. She says, I live on my husband's Social Security, and this is all I have to give. And I looked at the amount. $500. You could make an educated guess what my mind went to immediately. The widow's might. How this little lady gave everything. She didn't have much, but she gave everything. I'm talking about the Bible lady. But in her case, I, I wondered, when did she write the check? So I wanted to see the dating on it, and sure enough, it was on Monday, and the couple gave their money on Wednesday, and then the friend of the man of that couple gave his on Thursday. And then the glasses, that was their name, they gave 12000 And here's this. Now, the rest of the story, I, got, I mean, I could talk. I, you know how I can talk. <laughs> but but the, the, here's, here's the nice piece of the puzzle, too. The wealthiest man in our church, one of the wealthiest men in El Paso at the time, a man who was a very generous, godly man. 
He had said to me, if he said it once, he said it six times, I'm sure. My wife and I are going to contribute to the building. I said, I trust you. I never went to him and said, when are you going to give it? I wanted the Lord to prompt him. And he said, we're going to give. And he called our treasurer and he gave $100,000 in stock. I had no stock, still don't have any stock. But I learned something that if you give gifts by giving stock, you don't have to pay any capital gains tax on it. And so we got it, and it was given to us. We took possession of it on the Friday before Christmas. Christmas fell on Monday that year, and so nothing was done with it, and we had a hard time getting in touch with the stockbroker that we had used on another occasion. Finally, when we got the stock into his hands, he cashed it in, and between that was on Friday, between the time we learned about this on a Friday and the cashing in, which was probably only three days of activity on the stock market, it had increased in value from 1,000 to 117,000, 17% return, wow. three days. That's God. That's God. And when we began to report these things to the church, boom, people came forth, and within two weeks, the bill was paid off. We were not any debt. We had up, up close to half a million dollars. It was all gone. The whole project we got at a discount because our member who was the contractor got all of his subs to do it at their cost and he said, I'll make it up to you later in other projects that you'll be hired to do for us. So here's, here's the point. God wants us to be true to Him. And if we're true and obedient to Him, He's not going to leave you in the lurch. You may get down to $1.28 like I did, but that's even more exciting when you think back on it. It wasn't all that exciting at the time. But you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make our paths straight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being here today. And we just thank you for your economy, your economy works differently than ours. We thank you for it. We thank you for what you've done in our church's life. And we ask you, please keep doing it, Lord. Please keep us having an ever more generous heart to spread the gospel around the world, beginning here in El Paso and through missionaries. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.